2: Nothing so You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest today for episode 152 is Glenn Phillips, best known for his work with Toad the Wet Sprocket, who ruled the airwaves between 1989 and when they broke up after six albums in 1997. He's since had seven solo albums... Toad the Wet Sprocket Reform. They have a new album coming out this August, and he's had several interesting side projects. You're right now listening to All I Want, Toad's perhaps most famous single from Fear, a 1991 album. We're going to be discussing one of the latest Toad songs, Old Habits Die Hard, which was released in 2020 as a single. Then we'll talk about Leaving Old Town from his most recent solo album, 2016's Swallowed by the New. And then we'll go all the way back to Toad the Wet Sprockets' very first album, Bread and Circus. The song is One Wind Blows, originally recorded in 1988. We'll conclude by listening to the title track of that brand new album coming out, which is called Starting Now. To learn more, go to GlennPhillips.com and ToadTheWetSprocket.com. To learn more about this podcast, go to NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And if you really want to support the effort, go to Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic to get ad-free versions of all my episodes, my episode notes, and more. I will have played a little bit of All I Want from Fear 1991, just to orient folks, but we're going to get very quickly to one of the newest things, Old Habits Die Hard, a single from 2020, in the run-up to the election, I was a little hesitant to put this as the first thing that we talk about, since it's such a different style from everything else that I've ever heard from you, but that's a reason to talk about it. Can you say a little before folks hear it about what this was as an ex- a stylistic experiment? What is this?
0: I don't know, an experiment. I mean, between, I think, my various solo records, to me, it's not a huge outlier, I discovered Randy Newman in probably 97. A friend gave me Sail Away, and I hadn't really listened to it. And when my dad passed away, the song Old Man, for some reason, became the song that I couldn't stop listening to. And I was like, my song about getting through my father's death. And so he's been deep under my skin for a while. And I feel like lyrically, he has this way of writing. He's the musical analog for me to Kurt Vonnegut. He has this very wry, sardonic, sarcastic like look at particularly American life and our hypocrisies and has this way of talking about it. I mean, at the same time it's like hilarious and seems a little plain, but it's also incredibly biting and sometimes leaves you in this like weird wash of confusion. And so From songs like Sail Away to Jolly Coppers on Parade to, you know, at at the far end, Rednecks, right? Which you couldn't even possibly release these days. And there's a certain amount, I think, more in my solo writing than with Toad, where that side of me either harmonically, melodically, or lyrically kind of gets to come out. But I mean, there's songs like Silo Lullaby with Toad. You know, that was based on uh, Swimming to Cambodia, the Spalding Gray film, and where he meets this character on a train who's working in a nuclear silo. And is just so excited about starting World War III. Like, can't wait to blow up the world with nuclear weapons. And so I was thinking, like, what, what is the song that this person sings to go to sleep at night? And so, you know, Toad had a song based on that. And so it's not totally out of context, but it's not our normal place. There's maybe one song per album that inhabits that space. And I wrote it actually the first, the old habits die hard kept changing in the lead up to the election. I wrote it a year or two into the Trump administration. And, you know, was trying to take in kind of the same way Rednecks does, right? It's slamming it to the South and then it slams the Yankees too. This idea that our repeated habits, our unwillingness to look honestly at our history and, you know, I don't think you can move forward from certain things until you at least acknowledge them. And the way in which these repetitive patterns come and a big challenge for me with the Trump administration was trying to challenge my own bubble. When I reached points where I realized I was losing my own tolerance, I like to think that I'm on the side of like equality and inclusion. And then I noticed I was spending most of my days in a constant hateful rage to people who thought differently than me, and I had become exactly the thing that I I hate. <laughs> and so there's an examination of that in the song too, which is like. I want the truth. I'd rather have the truth than be right. But human minds are designed to want to be right. We want to have this thought and we want to stick to it. And even when people give us really good facts to argue us away from what we hold to be true, we fight even harder to keep believing it. And so while kind of criticizing this, this current factlessness and that everybody gets to walk in and empiricism doesn't matter anymore. I mean, there's crazy QAnon conspiracy stuff. Like, it's insane right now how far things have gone. And at the same time, I'm sure I'm completely blind to things. I mean, in in the current woke movement, the language we all have to use, it's very much of the now. And I have a feeling in 20 years, people will be going like, yeah, you're talking about, that's fine, but you were still using straws and disposable plastic. How could you have destroyed this beautiful planet? Like, why were you banging? Like, we'll have our feet held to the fire for the things that we didn't get right and that we ignore in order to have convenient and logical feeling lives and to, to fulfill our own narratives. And so, to me, the song, once again, is partially criticizing what's going on and partially trying to look under my own hood and ask where I'm blind. That's why the refrain of the old habits die hard. It's like, it is possible to change, but it actually requires effort and willingness.
3: It's a new day in the district After four years off the rails Want some checks and some balances Not the same old rich white male We can put this place in order Build a brand new house of cards. Pretty soon it may fall Ain't it true, don't they all? Old habits die hard Hope I'm aiming for the truth here. That I'm ready to be wrong. But my mind was designed for a different world, and the tribal urge is strong. When every loss. Privilege Is a swift Kick in the heart. It's been long Overdue I'll admit that it's true Old habits Die hard Old habits Die hard From ourselves Save us from Each other Save us from the sickness That sees a threat And not a sister Or a brother May this go down The lowest that we creep May the children in their cages See their mothers in their sleep May we find some kind of justice In the tatters and the shards Every recompense is welcome Old habits die hard Old habits die hard
2: It seems like there's a certain vitriol and venom that you're giving the gentle introspective version of that. Like the old habits, I heart is not just telling in a kind of a sympathetic way to the Trump supporters, yeah, I know. Losing privileges is is bad, but it's also you know as you were just saying aiming it at yourself. Yeah, can you say a little more about sort of your style of you know you're not known as the social commentator, but this is a really nice subtle delivery of this.
0: I have been a social commentator though too. I mean, from the confusion of Holder down, from Crazy Life, which is about Leonard Peltier and the American Indian. Movie. Well, I wrote that after the lyric, the music is Todd's, but the, I mean, the lyric came out of In the Spirit of Crazy Horse, the uh, Matheson book. So it's not like Toad hasn't actually waved the flag around before. It, once again, it's not out of context. And even in the gentle side, I mean, there's the line in the song, every loss of privilege is a swift kick in the nards, right? <laughs> Which is once again, both is psychologically proven is that the loss of privilege feels like injustice. And I am as susceptible to that as any Trump supporter is. And I will offer blame in different quarters. I have a different narrative for where I come from. And I think a lot of, honestly, what's driven that movement is a loss of privilege, is a recognition of true hypocrisy, is a feeling of dehumanization. And these corporations that have excessive executive compensation while not paying their employees a living wage and the unfairness of that. And feeling like the game is rigged, because in fact it is. And we can come up with different narratives and dramatic stories about what that is. But the fact is, there's a difference between privilege and entitlement. Privilege is something that can happen to you. Entitlement is when you think you deserve it. When you think your privilege is something that is sacrosanct, and that you are somehow utterly deserving of. And there's nothing in privilege that is about deserving. It's just a fact of where you're born, what you're offered, what gender or color of skin or sexual orientation or nationality or class you're born into. And so that idea, like as the world changes and as there are movements to, hey, can we make this more equitable? Or frankly, is my formerly privileged middle-class life starting to slip into something that does not feel at all secure and stable? And it really hurts for people to have that changed. And if there are narratives that Provide simple answers for blame. I think it's really hard for people to resist those. And throughout history, that's happened. Whether my family's Jewish, you know, they were kicked out of the Ukraine during the pogroms when the Cossacks were going and blaming the Jews for all of society's problems, even though they were stuffed into ghettos, right? <laughs> like, so none of it's new. It's all cyclical. It's all very human. And it, once again, it's not a matter of left or right. And I think for most of the I'll just make one more comment in it. I had to challenge myself with the lyrics on this record against my own tendency and my own liberal point of view to try to challenge my position and make these songs as universal as possible, where rather than speaking to the side I'm taking, they're trying to speak to these more universal frustrations and questions. And I'm trying to, in equal measure, challenge myself as much as I challenge somebody else. And I'm hoping in there that there's some tool, even if it only works for me, to step out of extreme judgment. And even if I know something to be factually untrue that someone may believe, you know, you can go into QAnon, I have to think there's something driving these people that is out of a love for their families and communities and wanting to protect, right? And if I thought that Democrats were drinking the blood of children, (laughs) you know, same story they told about the Jews and the pogroms, interestingly. Same stories, different costumes. If I thought that Democrats, Nancy Pelosi was actually literally drinking the blood of children, I would be deeply upset as well. So having to go, okay, like you have bad informational streams, but you care and you're trying to care.
2: So you've said a lot about to kind of situate what this is as a protest song. That I mean, just the tone itself, that it's sort of this... Oh, world weary, not resigned exactly, but like, as you're saying, it's the same through the ages, we're going to fall into these patterns. You mentioning the Jewish thing, that's a sort of a common cultural trope of, oh, what are you going to do? The That tragedy inflected, you know, historical levels of tragedy inflected humor that can be pointed, but yet still gently delivered. The fact that the kick in the nards thing is... A line that is sympathizing with the people that are the main subject of criticism and not, and that's why you suck, you know, and not like a point at them.
0: There is so much of this album responding to the last four years, responding to COVID, responding to this incredibly difficult time and trying to help myself get out of a position of superiority and judgment. And people are so entrenched in their groups right now that it's a real threat to compassion or harder and harder to just communicate. And so I'm trying really hard on these songs to challenge myself as much as I challenge anybody else. And to try to look at things through a lens that is both specific and universal. And I mean, I went into songs and changed. Starting now, originally, there was a line about to open up. And then I realized I got to change that with COVID, with like, Bad time to ask about open, you know, opening up sounds like one thing or there, and there was a thing about the lost cause, fighting for a lost cause. And I'm like, you know, lost cause is too politically ambiguous. Or if it's specific, it's leading in a really bad direction. So let's move that. It's the long shot, not the lost cause. It's, you know, I parsed my language really thoroughly so as to hopefully try to find some point of universality. Because I think left and right, we're all going through a deep disenfranchisement, a period of deep distrust, a period of varying degrees of fear of the future and fear of otherness. And it's it's a really hard time when people are so pitted against each other that there's really just reality itself. It feels like it's fine common language. And throughout my life, I've never felt that more. And I've always felt like I could bridge... Really well to people on the right and find common ground and find things to talk about where we can understand each other. And I cannot see them as something cookie cutter. And they cannot see me as something cookie cutter. And we can kind of move past judgment into a place where we can talk. And I think it takes, you know, for a functional society, it takes people with different viewpoints communicating effectively to actually get things done. And we've been rendered incapable of that now. And now, it makes me really fear for whatever approximation of democracy we already have.
2: Well, and that's maybe why the bridge in here is takes the form of a prayer save us from ourselves, save us from each other, not we can make it happen, we can save the children. It's not a rousing cry of because you're talking to a diverse group are not going to join together, like, or, you know, it, divine intervention would be required were that to happen, <laughs> perhaps.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's that thing of, Uh, You know The difference between preaching... And still, when the song came out, people were incensed. People were so angry. I got so many people saying they would never listen to Toad again. And I got a few people who wrote back and said, the first time I listened to the song, I had to turn it off and scream for a while about what an asshole you were. And then I listened to the lyric. And I don't agree with it, but you're not preaching or you're, you're trying to hold yourself accountable too. And I appreciate that. And I had a couple people write me back and say, they gave it a second listen and calm down. And once again, realized I'm trying to hold myself accountable too. I'm not trying to act like I'm better or superior or have it, anything worked out, you know, and we're all works in progress and we spend all our time just bringing each other down. There's no way forward and so throughout the album i've been trying to bring myself back and do that and once again songs for me are a way of doing that in my personal life and i would say as well it's written in this classic way it's written as a song that could have come out of the 40s you know in this kind of that bluesy it's a little bit anachronistic you know it's also thinking about these cycles of history and of tolerance and intolerance and communication and divisiveness you know slow forward movement
2: so let's get a second song out there from your last solo album, Swallowed by the New 2016. The song is Leaving Old Town. One of the singles from that. Can you say briefly before, before we play it? And then we can talk more in detail. Something about, you know, where you're at with this album, what people can expect with this song. Yeah.
0: Well, this album was the album I wrote after my divorce. And once again, I was trying to go for the most part outside of themes of romantic love and loss and try to make a breakup album that was more about the nature of grief and the nature of loving something and having it change or losing it and you know instead of going how could you leave me oh oh bad woman and i just heard a lot of breakup albums that are like that it's a little more nuanced and and i had this song in that the, the title was one of the ones that came from matt the electrician's songwriting group and this was one of the very first songs where I started to write about the subject at hand. I think I've been trying to avoid writing a breakup album. And this title made sense to me and the song came out really quick and really naturally. It's a little bit cinematic. It's a little bit of a feels like something out of a musical. And it's probably the closest to a straight on is me breakup song on the album. I think it works because of its kind of filmic quality.
3: no direction Learning how to be alone Learning how to stand on my own two feet i getting good now A recollection Hollow as a sparrow bone Mythic as the stories I parent getting colder, the days are shorter. It's not the season for the road. Blow out the candle, pack up your bedroll. I think it's time to... And boxes, hand me downs, and borrowed rooms. Still hoping to be loved anew. I need a new town. When no one knows me, no one heeds a thing I do, no one's ever heard of you. It's getting colder, the days are shorter It's not the season for the road Blow out the candle, pack up your bedroom I think it's time to go
2: We didn't talk about the arrangement in the first one at all, but you've got the same kind of nice, very tasteful string arrangements. Is that the same person? Is it Paul Bryan on both of these songs or just on the on Leaving Old Town?
0: No, it's actually, strangely, both songs are Leaving Old Town and Old Habits Die Hard are both the section, which is Eric Gorfian is the kind of chair. Eric did the arrangement on Old Habits Die Hard. Paul Bryan is also a great arranger. He did the arrangement on Leaving Old Town, but the strings were played by Eric and the section. So same players, different arranger. Yeah, Paul did an amazing job on this record. I loved working with him.
2: Yeah, well, especially on this one, they're just so exposed, whereas on Old Habits Die Hard, I mean, you've got this exposed piano through a lot of it, and then, well, a bunch of things kind of come in that you at least get bass and drums. Like, why is Old Habits Die Hard even a Toad song? I mean, I guess it's nice that you have todd Nichols' guitar you know kind of distinctive but in terms of what you are asking the bass to do on that like they're playing characters in that so there's a definite continuing style between these two songs that if you didn't tell someone they wouldn't know that one is a band song and one is a solo song likewise swallowed by the new was your first solo one in a while after toad had gotten back together so what determines your choice on what you're releasing as at any a given time
0: Some of it's been just kind of random, in all honesty. The strange thing about Toad is like the band itself has a way you get those players together. And if you look at songs like, whether it's Windmills, Are We Afraid, Little Buddha, Silo Lullaby, you know, we had some incredible Van Dyke Parks string arrangements, very similar to these in a certain way, very Randy Newman esque on Little Buddha and Silo Lullaby back in the day. So these aren't actually hugely outliers. And I had started to record a solo record with Sean Watkins producing of Nickel Creek. And I got midway through it and decided, I, who's waiting for a solo record? I should do a Toad record. These are really fun songs. And so switched all the songs over and started doing them with Toad. With Old Habits Die Hard, we used the track. It was Jevin Bruni who played on Swallowed by the New playing piano and Eric and the quartet, and we recorded the lead vocal, piano, and strings live. And when we switched it over, we added the bass, Todd's guitar, and the drums. You know, And it was a zero-click track, just single take. So that song had a different feeling. But in the context of all the recordings for starting now, it's it's a good part of it. So for me, there's like what's the difference between a Toad song and a Glenn song? It's like, well, Todd's playing guitar, Dean's playing bass, we have our harmonies, and they do a certain thing, and it ends up sounding like Toad. <laughs> and so
2: Well, more so on like Starting Now, the song, the single. I mean, that is obviously like the spirit of Toad, the new version of that. Whereas this particular, you know, if it's going to be solo piano and vocal for half of it, like, well, okay.
0: But I will also say, if you listen to like the Dulcinea album, for instance, starting now would be somewhat analogous to something's always wrong. It has that kind of heavy minor feel. But then again, reincarnation song, the last song on that record is really weird. Is like this late night screaming, like strange little voices. There's some odd stuff. I guess for me, it doesn't feel out of context. I feel like Toad always as a band, Todd has a a center to his musical writing. And on the new album, it's all my songs this time around, but I feel like songs like Starting Now are closer to what people love when they think Toad central.
2: When I was in college, I thought of them as frat-friendly. Like, I enjoyed them, Yeah, but the larger crowd, the reason that you were able to sell, sell so many records, it's not because they're focusing on the weird song at the end of the album that's the screaming but thing. But
0: the weird songs, all I'm saying is the weird songs have always been there. And that the band, even something, you know, if you look at the Dulcinea album, like, there's Nancy, which is this weird chromatic country song that talks about Yuri Geller, and, like, the album's kind of all over the map, but the band itself brings everything to center in a way that just kind of works. And I feel like the new album also works along those lines quite well.
2: But you feel like you are not restrained by the band into, we have to keep to something like this sound that was the reason that we got famous, such that a lot of people, when they do solo work, then let me try just something just totally different. But it seems like you already had a lot of room to experiment. And so it was really just, if I work with different people, like that's going to make the experiments... A little more varied
0: yeah and i think there's also an understanding for me that it's like there's very little that is unless i've been doing like community singing stuff so i've been writing these layered choir songs those wouldn't fit on a toad record that's at the compositional heart of those pieces they're they're not rock band songs but anything written within that modality frankly toad can nail it toad can do a good job of it the difference is in the arrangement and the attitude. Like I like to write songs that are not dependent on production, if that makes sense. There are songs that what I call portable. You can play them on a ukulele at a fire, and you don't need any other voices. You don't need any dressing to make it right. And there are some songs that are, I think, there's a lot in the modern world that is really It's not harmonically moving around a lot. It's not melodically really broad. It's really relying on production and sound to provide dynamic. Not a ton of music, but enough. And even artists I really love, like I would say, you know, there's Bjork songs that are really hard. I love trying to do Bjork covers solo acoustic because they're so tied to the production and they, some of them you can't take away from the production, but some of them you surprisingly can. So a Toad song is a song that Toad plays. And it's a capable band with a center and a signature sound. And so things will sound
2: like Toad. we got to stop for some sponsor talk. I think I've told you I enjoy spending the time that I need to to prep for these commercials with Masterclass. I've been doing the ads for them for well over a year now. And I'm still finding really good stuff. The past few episodes, I've been telling you about some of their writing and presentation communications classes. And those are great. I mean, it's the world's best minds that you can learn from anytime, anywhere at your own pace. From Steve Martin to Helen Mirren to Ken Burns to David Mamet to Jane Goodall to Bob Woodward. There's definitely going to be something in this catalog for everyone in your family. But of course, the core of why you, a Nakedly Examined music listener, would care about this is the music courses. And this time I spent my afternoon with Questlove. You might know him as the drummer for The Roots, But his course is on music curation and DJing, something that even a guitar strummer like myself really should know something about in the 21st century. And I found it just fascinating him telling me about, for instance, the equipment. He's still a two turntables and a microphone guy, but there are also these CDJ devices that give you that feel of turning turntables, but it's actually something that's triggering something in your computer and just the amazing stuff. It's not just scratching. It's using the tempo arm to change the songs so that they fit together better. He had this software called Serato, I believe, where you could do this on-the-fly editing. Just really amazing stuff. And I like the fact that you can watch or listen to this. You can play them at whatever speed you want. There's a place to take notes. There's a community you can interact with. There's a workbook you can download. This is just one of a dozen music courses with greats like Carlos Santana, Herbie Hancock, Reba McIntyre, Itzhak Perlman, etc. I highly recommend you check it out. You can get unlimited access to every Masterclass. That's hundreds of video lessons from over a 100 of today's most brilliant minds. As a Nakedly Examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off Masterclass. Last week, I received in the mail a very nice package from HelloFresh. I am not particularly creative with cooking. We have a lot of frozen fish, a lot of pasta in my house. My wife will make actual recipes, but not only do I not have a lot of cooking skill, but I don't have a lot of foresight in getting ingredients. Well, I made three days in a row my HelloFresh meals. I had specified the vegetarian ones. And they were all super flavorful, fancier stuff than I would ever even think to make. Stuff like chickpea fattoush, barbecue, pineapple flatbreads, one-pan portobello and poblano fajitas. They were all quick and easy to make. It was a huge hit. And affordable, HelloFresh is 28% cheaper than shopping at your local grocery store. HelloFresh delivers fresh, high-quality, pre-portioned ingredients, over 90% of which are sourced directly from farmers to ensure only the freshest produce and proteins are delivered right to your door. There are always at least 27 recipes to pick from, including low-cal, carb-smart, pescatarian, vegetarian options. And you can customize your order every week. You can add extra proteins and size, change up the serving size, throw in some of their quick and easy meals, desserts, other stuff, or just skip a week or two or three. And I also want to tell you about sustainability. HelloFresh is the first carbon-neutral meal kit, offsetting 100% of carbon emissions Their carbon footprint is 25% lower than store-bought grocery-made meals. And by skipping the grocery store and using HelloFresh, you're reducing your food waste by at least 25%. HelloFresh donated over 4 million meals to charity in 2020. This is a great service that you will feel good supporting. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Examined14 and use code EXAMINED14, and you'll get up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash EXAMINED14, code EXAMINED14 for up to 14 free meals plus shipping. Try HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Returning back to focus on leaving Old Town, yeah, I watched you play that solo, which it's interesting that it's got such an important string part, but yet it is... I'm just using this analogy because I got a definite McCartney vibe, especially when the whole band comes in near the end and you're, woo, like, I really got McCartney stars at that point, but that it's the fact that you're flat picking, but it sounds like a finger pick, that you're following the melody. Oh, you are. Okay. That you're following the melody with the guitar line, you know, so it's more like a Blackbird, which is a very much standalone song rather than a yesterday, which Of course, it's standalone in the sense that it has a wonderful melody and you can play it in any, but chordally on the guitar, it is a strumma strumma. It is a, as far as what makes that classic arrangement work is it seems like the strings were absolutely central. You know, that was one of the first things that was all about the strings. Yeah. And so this kind of mixes those interestingly, that the strings are very central and important and subtle, but you've got a detailed enough guitar part that like it absolutely doesn't need them.
0: This was written, once again, in what I consider to be like if I have a a Randy Newman modality, much more like that. And the idea from the beginning on it was, in talking to Paul about the arrangement, wanted it to feel like a movie. Even when the band comes in, it's like, the
2: rain starts
0: coming down hard. And it's a very visual song to me. We really wanted to put that across and have something that, once again, didn't feel like a rock band. Wanted to feel like the dialogue stopped. And the movie became this. And it's the montage that something is happening.
2: So can you say anything about how you communicate with the arranger? In Leaving Old Town, specifically, you're very precise and Baroque on how you're delivering the words so that the strings can exactly join up. In some cases, where they're just coming in for one word, and then you pause, and they come in for another word. This seems much different than your let it be, if we're going to continue with the Beatles analogies, where... It was sent off somewhere and they added strings. Is there a lot of back and forth in coming up with those arrangements?
0: We did maybe three revisions. So Paul would send in basically a MIDI track, you know, would do these on Sibelius or whatever on his computer, send it back to me, and I'd kind of hear the mock up. And yeah, thinning things out or like, oh, could we go more chromatic? You know, whatever, you know, back and forth trying to build it. Some general notes, some very specific notes. But Paul is a really amazing producer and an amazing arranger. And we communicate extraordinarily well together. And so it was really easy to say what the scope I was thinking of was and him hand it in and pretty much 90% just go like, yes, exactly that. So uh, he made it really easy.
2: As far as the style of storytelling of this, I guess that's where you're getting the Randy Newman comparison here, just in terms of you're talking about it in terms, like, we're going to pack up and jump on a rail. Like, that sort of old-timey references. I mean, just the fact that you're talking about the candle in the bedroll, you know, was this as meticulous as you were saying the first song was in terms of how you were crafting this lyric?
0: I wasn't thinking about it going anywhere. This was at a period where I was living in the, the I had a studio in the garage at my old house. My wife and I had broken up. I was feeling utterly dejected. And I was telling myself, I'm going to write a happy dance record. I've never written a dance record. I would just want to write uplifting, like like I'm not going to have a pity party. And then in the songwriting group, there were two titles. And the first two that got written for this record were Reconstructing the Diary. And I wrote that song in less than an hour. It was like a half an hour. It just came out. And once again, a very jaunty little sad breakup song. And the second one I wrote was Leaving Old Town, which was uh, the next week's title. And those songs, I've been trying so hard not to write a breakup song and not to address. And I think, especially with Leaving Old Town, by depersonalizing it, instead of writing about like my breakup and my specifics, by making a movie about it and some character who was going through what I was going through, who was having everything change and Going into winter and not wanting to be alone and cold in the world and wondering if I needed to just leave. Like every place I went, every person I saw was this reminder of what I lost. It was incredibly painful. And I got to write about those things through a character. You know, I didn't have to fictionalize this whole massive story, but I just got to make this little movie about a, you know, if I'd put on whatever random film and saw the scenes in that, I would have started sobbing uncontrollably. And this song was kind of a way to gently, I think, allow me to start feeling a lot of what I needed to be feeling. And, you know, it became much more expansive. Like the last song on the record was written during the recording process. It was the last day of tracking. I wrote it the night before. You know, it's the song Grief and Praise, which is specific in certain ways, but it's extremely universal. Like, There's a kind of progression from these specific characters and this more breakup-y stuff to stuff that's really much broader in scope. But in order to get into it and unlock it, I had to write this song.
2: So just like in Old Habits Die Hard, that you're doing a social commentary, not with a straight-ahead strident thing, but by using these conventions and making it a little more gentle, likewise with this one, by putting it in second person by making the language kind of archaic, there's a definite lullaby quality to it. You know, that is very much not like this is not a Peter Cetera ballad.
0: One of the problems I've had in my, you know, in the solo stuff is I do switch between a lot of modalities. You know, once again as an artist, you're always kind of looking at yourself even if you're looking at something outside. And I like to switch my perceptual stance pretty often. I like to switch between types of songs, modes of writing. I don't like to always do everything from the same standpoint but I want it to be authentic wherever it's coming from. And I think of Gillian Welsh when I think of that, where she was raised in Brentwood or Beverly Hills. Her parents were the musical directors for the Carol Burnett show. And she went off to Berkeley school of music in Boston and she found her authentic voice in something that sounds like it comes out of Appalachia. Right. I believe all her songs and all her characters and There's nothing about her personal experience that I know of aside from a deep love of that music. Like it's why on, you know, the Revelator album, she's, you know, talking about being a faker the whole time and talking a lot about authenticity. But like, if you listen to a song like Everything is Free, Everything is Free is this amazing song. It's like this Appalachian kind of bluegrassy sounding record that's basically about file sharing. And if you know it's about file sharing. It makes perfect sense, but it sounds like it was written in the thirties and it's, you know, everything's free now. That's what they say. Everything I've ever done, they're going to give it away, but we're going to do it anyway, even if it doesn't pay. Like, right? It's, there's nothing in it that talks about technology, but it's about that fact that everybody knows, like, if you're an artist, you got to write songs. You have no choice in it. And so they can devalue you as much as you want. You're still going to do it. And. It's such a brilliant song, and it never gives itself away. It's so good. It's so good and universal. And once again, written in this modality that actually, from what I know, is not what you would expect from the kid of Carol Burnett's musical directors.
2: Well, I want to ask about your own kind of gradual countrification, which is not—it's not reached extremes, and some of it just has to do with who you are working with. That if you're going to play with people from Nickel Creek, then yes, you're going to have more steel guitar and violin and just the trappings of that. But even in the evolution of your voice, like the way that you pronounce go in this song, like has a certain, I don't know, have you noticed or has there been anything intentional about the evolution of your voice over time? Have you gotten gradually more attracted to country-influenced music?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've been touring solo acoustics since probably 97, 98. So I've spent a long time on the road with an acoustic guitar and me. You know, sometimes my friend Jonathan will come out with me or, you know, but mostly I I tour solo. And so I'm playing at singer-songwriter houses. I'm playing at, at folk festivals. I'm playing in situations quite a lot that it's a little more of the modality. It's more of the storytelling. It feels, just kind of feels natural. And I'm certainly not country enough for anyone in the country world to think I'm country. But there is a tinge to it. And there's some songs. There's like a song called Transient Whales on the new Toad record. It's another one of Matt the Electrician's titles. They're everywhere. It definitely feels a little country. But country music is also pop music now. And frankly, I also, you know, I'm a Grant Parsons fanatic. And I love Amy Lou Paris. And I don't listen to, you know, I think Laurie McKenna is one of the best living songwriters right now. I love Chuck Cannon. I've, there's so many friends I have, you know, even somebody like Sean Mullins, like people I not only admire, but know personally. A lot of the music I digest and a lot of the music I respect, it's like it gets under your skin. So it just feels like a natural progression, not chasing anything, but I'm sure that voice comes up more. But once again, I'm not even country enough for alt country. I feel like my solo (laughs) records basically solidly miss every single genre there is.
2: (laughs) Well, if I pick even slightly different songs off of Swallowed by the New, and you have some that are much more replete with slide guitar and your country trappings.
0: Part of that's also like some of the musicians I love. I worked with Greg Lease. I met him again through the Watkins Family Hour, through Sean and Sarah Watkins from Nickel Creek. Pretty sure he'd played with Toad before. Benmont Tench, who also plays with them, had played organ on the song Brother for Toad. So we had worked with Benmont Tench. And when I did the Mutual Admiration Society project, that was with Benmont and with Greg Lease. So I've toured with him, played with him a lot. And he's a hard musician to put down. He is so brilliant and beautiful. And his aesthetic has gone so deep into me, especially his pedal steel work. I've described him before as like he's the water in the snow globe. Like, <laughs> you know, you can shake it up in this glitter, but there's something about him. He's the medium through which everything swims. And sometimes his playing, it's like he'll sound like a reverb and then out of it, he'll start ghosting some melody that you just played. He never plays the same thing twice. He's the most stunningly intuitive and collaborative player. And on as well.
2: Well, and sort of the, the model for keyboardists for... Alt country or you know guitar based bands like a guy that can really play but can stay out of the way you know <laughs> can keep in his space. It's not a Billy Joel. The people on that
0: record, uh, guitarist and keyboard player, and also Paul, the producer, all play with Michelle and DeGio and so they were incredibly quick, but none of them sound like studio musicians. Like the idea was make this ragged in the in the way like a band. You know, we're going to do it quick, and we're going to do it with flaws intact. We're not going to try to arrange this and make it slick and perfect. We tracked the songs as much as we could with lively vocals and drums and bass, my guitar live, and and really tried to have it be as spontaneous as we could.
2: We need to go back in time now. We always do at least one old song and you let me pick it. I gave you the opportunity. But One Wind Blows from your very first album, Bread and Circus, recorded in 1988 was it actually remixed before it was released by the major label or it was just no remastered mastered okay just because this is the one when I was playing back through your catalog that I don't know took me back somewhere it, this was definitely I was in college starting in fall of 89 and all your original bunch of albums were sort of in the air at the time and this song in particular you know had that moodiness that I didn't really until I was reading the wiki about it like oh you know this album was criticized for being too R.E.M.E. and I okay, well, I can see the hypnotic thing about R.E.M. is maybe one of the reasons why I really like this song. Can you say, insofar as you remember, anything about the origin of this song?
0: I remember very little about the writing of it, because I would have been 16, maybe 17 when I wrote it, the lyric. I think it's Todd's music. I can't remember who wrote the music on that one. But it's interesting. It's like there's a part of me that goes like, "Hey, that kid was trying to be deep, thinking about try to protect yourself from one thing, and you know, there's more than one current of stuff that's going to hit you, and kind of moving with life instead of against it." And like oh, I would have written most of it very differently if I tried writing it today. But that lyric, it's hard for me to listen to old stuff just because I was I was like 16 when these songs got written. <laughs>
2: So that's interesting. I guess that kind of explains if you think maybe Todd came in with this chord progression, with this song, and then you added lyrics and a melody over it. Because that kind of explains, like, you know, if you're writing, this is a cool chord progression. Like, well, it better be a cool chord progression in isolation. And it is. Todd always writes that way.
0: My songs, I feel like, because on most of the Toad records, about half the music is Todd's, about half the music is mine. And Todd's music, It's in a certain way, it's very straightforward. My songs are kind of all over the map stylistically, and sometimes they're super simple and sometimes they're not. Todd's usually have at least one thing in the chord progression that's like this non-standard piece of awesomeness that becomes the focus of the song. Like, you know, there's some things always wrong. Just one kind of non-standard bit of modal borrowing or he's really great at doing something that's kind of simple but has a harmonic-based hook to it and making it feel like it's not too tricky or, I don't know, they're very invisible. Like, Walk on the Ocean is a great example of that. Between the chorus and the verse, it's either switching keys or switching modes, but it does it utterly transparently. It's like a very intuitive but very sophisticated kind of harmonic understanding. If you asked him what he's doing there, is this modal or are you feeling like we're going to this
2: other, he'd be like, I don't know, I just... Sure, it's written with your hands, which is some of the most interesting stuff. It sort of relies on a certain randomness in the way the guitar is. You know, that's like when I write on piano, actually it's worse now. The more you actually learn p- to play piano, the less able you are to do stuff semi-randomly. Like That's why Peter Buck, I know, switched to mandolin. Like, I was too good on guitar. There was no surprises. Like, But a mandolin, just throw that out there. Okay, something new is going to happen. Yeah. Also, your choice in how to start the vocal in the first place. The fact that you're doing these pickups, so it's the end of the phrase is on the one, da-da-da-da, on where it starts, it makes the whole thing, and just even the fact that the whole song only has just, bap-bon-da-dun, as opposed to some longer, the whole thing is a little disorienting, until the chorus comes. And then the chorus, because it is so rock-solid and introduces that pretty lead guitar thing, and the clapping. Yeah, can you say a little about the fact that you self-produced this But that had that layering and the clapping and the, there's a tambourine on here too, you know, that you had using a four track. This is obviously not live. You're having layers like this. We'd recorded a
0: couple things on four tracks before we did this record. And our friend Brad Knack, he had a solo project called Brad is Sex. And he asked if we'd be his backup band on two songs. And then as our payment, he said, you can just record two songs of your own. And so it was called Camp David. It was in a tract home in uh, Thousand Oaks, and he had like Flickinger console and a two-inch Ampex sixteen-track. And we would set up in his kids' bedrooms. So we recorded those two songs, and we're like, "Do we have eight more songs? We should do a record. Like that's two done." And we did the whole record for six hundred dollars. It was recorded and mixed incredibly quickly. We did all the songs with live lead vocals. Bass drums, guitar, and then we overdubbed a couple of harmonies. We overdubbed, like, think a clarinet or a saxophone in one song, and maybe hand claps or like we we overdubbed very very little. It was two guitars, bass drums, live, and lead vocal. And I don't think we fixed anything in the lead vocals. I I have so much trouble listening to that record. I have this really whole like odd. Oh man, I, I was trying to sing, I was singing with this weird half English accent because I was listening to all this English music and, uh, but that's what you get for recording records when you're that young. And so it was a super quick record to make, like total of, I think 48 working hours at most to record and mix. So yes, there was some production on it, but it was quick and dirty and indie.
2: And just looking at these lyrics more. There's something maybe what is hypnotic about R.E.M. and what is channeled in this song of that is that you're never sure, like, what is the mood here? Like, it's definitely a dark and moody song that opens up into the relatively pretty, by comparison, chorus that release. But it seems like most of the lyrics, I mean, it's a wound untended, grows and never heals. Like, it is straightforwardly depressing I'm sleeping facing the wall, but I'm not sure. Like, did you communicate about like, what is the mood here? Or is it just, you know, he gave you a cassette and then you would just let it go until things came out.
0: I'd take them home and pour over them. I think there's a reoccur, there's a lot of reoccurring themes in my lyrics. And once again, I don't know if it's the most sophisticated treatment of them I've ever done, but it's what's interesting about looking at those records, at least the subjects I was trying to write about, not knowing really, you know, as a 16-year-old, I think 16-year-olds are incredibly brilliant, but they haven't seen a lot yet. (laughs) But there's been this recurring theme that's not even depressing. It's like, what I note, bubbly, happy, denial-oriented music doesn't please me. And completely depressed, angry, and hopeless music does not really please me either. I feel... So much of what I've studied, and, and maybe we just have a track and believe a certain thing, but especially as I've gotten older, I feel more and more alive the less I compartmentalize and the less I am dualistic. And the more that I realize something like, you know, the, just the fact that grief is an indicator that something I love has been lost or changed. And that's something that happens automatically in life. And When David White talks about it, he talks about how, you know, even your children growing up happy and healthy will break your heart, you know? You love them. They're wonderful. They're perfect. They grow. They change. They, if they're healthy, they move away. And then you, you know, you miss them. It breaks your heart. So there's nothing wrong with grief and that experiencing pain, experiencing heartache, experiencing loss. That's the price of being alive and caring about anything. And I feel like I've always reached towards that and wanted to seek that place. There is a kind of ecstatic state where pain and joy Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it in this poem called Call Me By My True Names, you know, where my joy and sadness are one. I feel like I've always been, even when I didn't know what it was, even when I hadn't read a lot of books on Buddhism, I feel like I was aiming towards that state, that place that is completely open, where you don't even know the difference between pain and joy, because it's just about being completely present to everything and expanding capacity and. I've always aimed towards that. That part's funny for me to see, but I didn't have much experience of it at that age.
2: Well, and let me revise my assessment. I mean, when you're sleeping face to wall, plaster tells me nothing. This sort of the way that teenage angst shows up in, you know, lying around, but then you've got this, just more expressing a sense of unreality about things or I sense a sense of movement somewhere else. Something is puzzling, something is niggling at you, but you can't quite put your finger on it. It's expressing more of, It's not open-faced wonder at the world, but it is something more subtle and, I don't know, existential or something (laughs) than merely, I'm sad because my girlfriend or something.
0: No, yeah, it's more, I'm lying at night, I can't sleep, and just, there's this, whether it's something mystical or spiritual, or just the fact that, you know, here I am having my own little problems, unable to sleep in my bed, and... Life is happening everywhere else. People are going through, for everybody, their own movie is the most important movie in the world, right? Their own story is the center. They are the central character. And yet, yeah, all across the world, I'm in the middle of the night. It's dark where I am. People are living their lives and falling in love and having people they love die and losing their jobs and having amazing luck. And I think the song, it's about that, that idea, the more than one wind blows that it keeps coming back to is just like more is happening than you can comprehend at any given moment. And even in your own body, in your own life, in the place you're looking around. And this, I mean, this is where I think about mindfulness. You, you can't actually take in everything that's just happening locally around you. All the color, all the movement, all the subtlety, the subtle sensations in your own body. It's an art and a practice to sit down and even just stop living in your thoughts and be present in any given single moment. And anytime we do that, anytime we're pulled into that moment, there's an immense depth to it. It doesn't require running around the world, doing something special, achieving anything to sit and be and perceive is, you know, kind of the most profound spiritual experience you can have.
2: So is that still something that? you find in your newer work you're you're trying to capture in song. I found, you know, when I was this age, when I was in college, when I was writing songs, there was a lot of like, I want to get free of all cliche, so I'm going to try to describe in the most pure way possible what I'm experiencing right now. You know, doing phenomenology, is that's the technical term. <laughs> and then it's trying to record mindfulness, but then at least the songs we've covered here, and as I've written many more songs, then it becomes more about, a literary exercise that, uh, you know, it's that you channel instead of like, how can I express the raw emotion or what might be just a lack of emotion? I'm just sitting here trying to write a song. It's not that I'm overwhelmed by a particular thing that's happening in my life. I'm just trying to write something honest right now. And that as you develop more literary tools, then you would channel that more into like writing a story about something as opposed to describing lying on the bed staring at the plaster.
0: <laughs> yeah. There's scope to it though, right? Like old habits die hard. I wanted to write a song about what was going on, and I think I didn't want to write it and be an asshole. Then I realized I was an asshole, and I wanted to write it knowing that I was an asshole also, right? And that's a different thing. But my life changed a lot about seven years ago, and one of the things that got me out of total despair was this thing of like, Writing with more intention and realizing it's not just like I go through my artistic process. Whatever I come up with is good, but going like, what effect is this going to have on people? Am I, what am I putting into the world? And what do I want it to achieve? And what are the the songs I've written before that people have resonated the most with? And, you know, if I'm writing songs to help myself grow and heal, those are going to be useful. I don't think you arrive somewhere and get done and then get to turn off and rest. I think, you know, life is a a constant process of learning and being wrong. I mean, my parents were scientists and there's a lot to learn from physics in that. Like the most exciting thing to a physicist is to find out that everything they ever thought was true is wrong, right? There's this new muon stuff going on. And they're like, yeah, could be that basically all our models of how the universe works are completely wrong. And what could be better than like, Having to learn again and having to turn that corner and forget everything you knew and start in wonder, scientists live within that, and my dad lived within that I, you know there were all these books on string theory right as he was dying. The last book he ever read was on string theory, and for him, it was just the most beautiful thing possible. It opened up the universe for him in ways that were taking his mind to new places and filling him with wonder that's how he left the planet and so I've always fought depression and melancholy. And I've always, you know, since I was a little kid, I've really fought the voices inside me that want to destroy me or hurt me and the the voices that tell me I'm unworthy. And so, you know, even being famous when I was a kid, you know, for that brief period, it was really hard on me. I had incredible imposter syndrome and I figured everybody was going to realize that this was a bad joke and that they got the wrong guy. And that we weren't supposed to be popular and the band would figure out and the fans would figure out and I'd be thrown down. And frankly, when the band broke up, it felt like that. I had a total breakdown. And so you know, with all this, it's kind of on my path is I've tried to figure out what are the things that bring me joy and purpose and what is the thing that I want to offer into the world that's useful and purposeful and relevant to other people, not who I can proselytized to, but who are going through a lot of the same questions I go through and the same difficulties I go through. These feelings of unworthiness are not unique to me, and they're not a matter for a pity party. They're part of the human experience. And I think if you're able to feel great joy and great pain, you can either try to numb yourself all the time, but that affects the joy and the love, or you can try to build your capacity and have a different relationship with grief and loss and the way things move and To me, that's has been an incredibly important process to to just be a beginner on, and hopefully, writing from those perspectives helps other people who are going to go through the same human stuff I go through. Their parents are going to die, their kids are going to grow up, they're going to lose things they love, they're going to have financial and you know insolvency, Uh, they're going to have fear or judgment, and. I used to just write songs and not worry about what it meant or not worry about, only worry about what it meant to me. And I feel now, I don't know, I, they need to be written for others as much as they're written for me. Whether it's still just an exercise in ego, I don't know. Once again, maybe I will find that everything I believe is wrong. And you know, frankly, if I do, I'll be happy.
2: <laughs> well, I think you've given a great introduction to, let's just leave folks with the title track from your upcoming album, Starting Now, when is that going to be out? Probably August 27th. Well, there you go. Which does have much more so than Old Habits I Hard." It has that classic Toad the Wet Sprocket sound, but it's got the melancholy. It's got the thickness of the chords. It's got the full sound,
0: but also it's essentially a song about mindfulness. And strangely, one of the, one of the lines like, I kind of stole from my accountant because I was going, ah, I've always been so afraid of you know, that I'll invest in the wrong thing that I haven't, I've made no money and you know, my savings isn't earning any money. It's just sitting there. Or there's no interest anymore. It's not, you know, I'll never retire because I'm just losing money. He said, well, the best time to start saving is 20 years ago. The next best time is today. And <laughs> a bit of that comes into the, the song. If, you know, like the best time to change the things, you know, you need to change is 20 years ago. Second best time is now. So, the song in many ways is about that mindfulness. What's the only step you can take? The very next step or the step you're taking right now. It's the only thing you have real control over. And, you know, this idea that hope is not a certainty. Hope is not this random optimism that things are going to come out the way you want. It's a willingness to do what you know is right and be uncertain of the outcome and be brave in that way. And I have trouble with my own bravery. So, for me, once again, I needed this song, and it's a way of talking about something that is, once again, oriented towards mindfulness, but not in a way that's saying, "Sit down every day, try to read a Buddhist book." I'm not, you know, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know nobody care about that song. How do I discuss these topics in a way that is more open and universal, and isn't going to push people away? And it's stretching my own boundaries about what I'm learning and what I'm, you know, trying to offer.
2: Well, thank you so much for talking
0: to me. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure.
3: I've wasted years Won't waste another instant i fed my fears Don't mean you sit there just waiting for the changes. It's fighting for the long shot. It's getting in the trenches.
2: thanks so much to Glenn. He made that interview very easy for me with his effusive philosophical musings. You can learn more about his work at toadthewetsprocket.com and glennphillips.com. That's Glenn with one N. So this is just one in a line of very good interviews, which you should definitely be subscribed to listen to directly through the Nakedly Examined Music feed. You can find Nakedly Examined Music on Apple Music, etc. The links are at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Next time, I'm talking with Steve Kilby from The Church, then Chris Connolly from Revolting Cox and Ministry and lots of solo albums. And most recently, man, I had a wonderful interview with Melvin Gibbs, who's one of the most amazing bass players you will ever hear. He played with the Rollins Band, with Arto Lindsay, Defunct. And he's also a producer, a programmer, a hip-hop guy. Again, you can get all that at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Or if you want to support the effort, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. You can get ad-free versions of all the episodes and my episode notes. I have a big announcement. I have started my fourth podcast. It is officially launched. It is on all the streaming services. It's called Philosophy versus Improv. So if you want to search for it, just philosophy vs. Period improv or go to philosophyimprov.com. It is a super fun show, very different than what you're hearing here. But whatever your bag, I really appreciate your listening, your support, your ratings and reviews. Feel free to reach out to me, mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. You can suggest guests, suggest yourself as a guest, or just say hi. I love hearing from y'all. Until next time, keep on in. This is Mark Litzmeyer signing off.